Netflix has thousands of service instances communicating with each other. When a Netflix client on a smartphone makes a request for a movie, that request hits Netflix's backend, where the request is fulfilled by a chain of requests through other different services. Services and clients communicate using several different interaction patterns. A service might send a single request and expect a single response, or it might fire and forget, not expecting a response at all. A service also might send a single request and expect a stream of messages to be sent back over the network. In a highly interactive application like Netflix, there is a frequent use of streams of data. RSocket is a protocol that makes reactive streams easier to work with. Ryland Degnan is the CTO of Netify, and he joins the show to discuss reactive streams and service-to-service -service networking. Ryland worked on Netflix on the Edge platform team for four years, and he shares his experience working at Netflix, the challenges of networking at scale, and the company has, he is building around RSocket, Netify. It was a great conversation about networking at a complex organization like Netflix, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Ryland Degnan, you are the CTO and co-founder of Netify. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Great to be here. Prior to starting Netify, you were on the Netflix Edge platform for four years. What is the Edge platform at Netflix? Yeah, the word Edge has a, a bunch of different meanings, I know, in different contexts. But in the Netflix sense, if you imagine the Netflix architecture as this sort of hourglass shape with all of the clients, web browsers, you know, set-top boxes, people's phones at the top, and then all of the microservices that make up the Netflix architecture at the bottom. The edge layer at Netflix is sort of the middle of that hourglass. So it received all of the sort of the control plane traffic from all the clients and then distributed it to all the microservices within Netflix and then aggregates the responses. So that was an interesting position to be in because, as you know, Netflix was sort of one of the early adopters of cloud. And so that team was sort of in the middle of dealing with all the complicated problems of networking in the cloud and how to deal with you know failures in distributed systems. So chances are, if there's a problem with that can be encountered in a, in a large-scale distributed system, so the edge team was the one that was going to encounter and deal with those problems. In this context, is edge only meaning the edge of the server-side infrastructure or like the CDN? Or does it also include the client devices? Yeah, in this context, it's just sort of the edge of the server side. And then, you know, Netflix has sort of open connect appliances at the, the edge, sort of all the way extended out into ISPs. But in the sense of the edge platform team is sort of the edge of this microservice infrastructure that makes up Netflix. Right. And we'll get into some of the issues that you were tackling at the Edge platform. Just speaking more broadly, Netflix is one of those companies that is forced to solve problems before there are commodity solutions to take off the shelf. What were some of the canonical engineering challenges you worked on at Netflix that felt unprecedented while you were there? You can just look at some of the open source products that kind of emerged out of this team to get a sense of the the problems that we had to deal with. I think a good example is something like uh, Hystrix, so like the circuit breaker pattern. There was no sort of commodity software to deal with that, so the Edge platform team uh, created Hystrix. 
to deal with the problem of you know failure in these distributed systems and how you how you deal with it, how you fall back to some known good state if you know bad things happen. Another one is uh, RX Java was another open source product to emerge from the Edge platform team, and that was attempting to deal with the problem of composing all of these uh, distributed service calls and sort of aggregating the responses. If you have to, as a developer, drop down to the level of sort of mutexes and thread locks. It makes for a very complicated system, um, but what RxJava gives you is sort of this nice reactive DSL t- to describe this composition of service calls and then you know modify the response or aggregate things into a single response that gets sent back to the user. Uh, so that was sort of an attempt to deal with this the inherent complexity that goes along with building these distributed systems. Netflix was one of the early power users of the cloud. Today, it sounds blase, but when Netflix decided to go all in on the cloud, that was a big deal. That was kind of unusual. Were there ways in which Netflix pushed the limits of the cloud infrastructure in the earlier days? Oh, for sure. I mean, they were sort of continuously pushing the limit in the sense that as each bottleneck is removed, inevitably you'll hit the next bottleneck. And so, you know, I remember, you know, periods of time where sort of we were pushing the limits of something like Eureka, the service discovery mechanism, just the uh, the number of services that were out there meant that the payloads that each client had to download started to become very large and sort of the startup time started to become larger and larger because just to get sort of the, the list of all the services that are avail- available to you at any point in time becomes a non-trivial problem. You were on the Edge platform team which is a type of platform engineering. Platform engineering is a term that's used to describe engineering teams that are building platforms for other teams within a company. Why is platform engineering so important to Netflix? I think because of the sheer number of services that exist within the Netflix infrastructure, there needs to be a certain uniformity to how they're built and operated to have sort of any chance of wrangling the complexity of that architecture. I mean, you know, the microservice architecture is something that doesn't come without a downside. And the downside is generally sort of managing and wrangling the complexity of all of the inter-service communication that has to take place. And so if everybody goes off and then and tries to write services that behave totally differently, suddenly just to be able to have those talk together, you need to do an inordinate amount of work sort of on the client side to be able to figure out like, so what is this API? How do I call it? In that sense, things like sort of a common platform become very attractive because as a developer, I don't have to worry about how I call this API. I just have a nice client that's available to me. I already have circuit breaking and metrics and all these sort of things built in that I can take advantage of. I don't have to reinvent the wheel with every microservice. Right. So platform engineering is all about finding these commonalities that different teams within Netflix or different service owners within Netflix are having problems with. We did a show a while ago about the Netflix serverless-like platform, which was about building these reusable backend components for all the different clients that exist within Netflix. So you have this common problem of different people having different clients, whether you're on iOS or you're on a Amazon Fire TV or you're on your PlayStation. There's all these different clients and all of these clients have to solve similar problems that's a perfect example of, of when platform engineering might be useful. Another example is what you worked on when you were at Netflix, which is inter-service communication. Now, we've done tons of shows on 
microservices, these services that are communicating with each other that can scale up and scale down. When we talk about inter-service communication, why do services need to communicate with each other and what are they communicating? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, this is sort of an evolution of the monolithic data center application. So back in the day, you could conceivably build a large application that existed within one sort of you know mainframe computer. And then that doesn't require any network calls for the various components of that application to communicate with one another. Those are just sort of in-memory method calls. But with the move to the cloud and this move to just sort of distribute um, applications across many independent services that can be owned by one team and scaled up and down and sort of operated in isolation of all the, all the other services that make up your application. Suddenly, the problem of inter-service communication becomes sort of the core problem of building your application because what was previously just an in-memory method call now becomes a call that has to travel across the network and then can introduce latency in unexpected places in within your application and, of course, can fail. And so, the complexity of dealing with that becomes sort of much, much greater and a much more important part of your application. When I have service A and I want to call service B, I want to establish a connection to service B. Let's start to explore this relationship that two different services can have with one another. So if I want to have service A connect to service B, how do I establish a connection with that service? And this sort of gets into the various topologies that are available to you to solve this problem. One method you could solve this is with something called a service registry or a service discovery, where you have sort of a central registry of IP addresses that are associated with this service. And then the caller goes and looks up that set of IP addresses and then load balances across those various IP addresses, sort of establishing um, a connection to the IP address it wants to talk to and then making the, the service call. That's sort of one that's one possibility. Another possibility is sort of a more broker-like architecture where you have a broker that sits in the middle that handles that routing for you based on some kind of protocol. That's very much like sort of the TCP protocol is designed network infrastructure that sits there sort of invisibly to the user and handles, you know, DNS lookup and, and routing. So the call, the call you make to an IP address finally arrives at the machine that it's destined to. So I think what people... What you really want as a developer is for that to be invisible to you. I want to have the, the, the core abstraction to me as a developer is the service that's being offered. So what I really want is just to be able to call a service and for that sort of call to be routed invisibly to me and wind up at one of the services that can handle my request. Before we get into making that plumbing invisible and making it easier to deal with, let's tackle some of the harder to understand for some people internals of networking. So if I am establishing this connection between two services, you can do several different things. You can make an HTTP request. You could establish a WebSocket. Describe some of the different connections that two services can have with each other. Yeah. So a lot of it depends. The, the way you establish the connection could conceivably depend on sort of what your application semantics are. Um, and you mentioned HTTP. So TCP itself, which is the protocol HTTP is based on, is a completely bidirectional asynchronous protocol. So it, it opens up a channel between you know sender and receiver and allows either one to send streams of bytes back back and forth. Typically in a 
sort of a microservice architecture, you're not really interested in the stream of bytes, but messages that get sent back and forth. So HTTP, sort of an early application layer protocol that removes this uh, bi-directionality of TCP and really gives you sort of two entities, a client and a server. And the client can only make a request to a server and get a response. So if that's the only sort of, you know, modality that you're interested in, then HTTP is a, is a perfectly valid way to make a connection. In many cases, however, especially today, you're not only interested in this request response style interaction, but you're interested in streaming um, interactions. And that streaming could be in either direction. So, I mean, Netflix is a great example of this. As you watch a show and navigate within you know, the Netflix website, it's streaming a constant flow of information pertaining to your, your session back that gets you know, funneled into various backend data processing pipelines and, and handled. And of course, streaming can happen in the other direction too. So you might want to send out sort of a push notification to a user as, as things are happening within your system so they don't have to keep polling for information. You can just push things out to them. And that can, you know, the ability to do that sort of push or a stream of information in the opposite direction can reduce your network infrastructure vastly because you don't have these clients sort of continuously polling for updates. So those sort of interactions are where sort of a longer lived connection-based protocol like WebSocket becomes very interesting because that sort of takes the TCP style of a single connection that can have messages flowing in either directions, elevates it to the application layer. So um, now I have this persistent long-lived connection between a, a sender and receiver, and either one of them can start sending messages back and forth. The WebSocket doesn't, WebSocket goes enough of the way that you can build something with it, but it doesn't do a lot of the things that you know you would want. So uh, things like resilience are, end up being a problem. And then just defining an application semantics on top of WebSocket. All WebSocket gives you is a stream of frames that go back and forth. But to give any meaning to those frames, you start, you start to have to build your own you know, messages and decoders and then routing on top of WebSocket. So it ends up becoming a lot of work. So a lot of these ideas are this sort of describes the problems that we were facing at, at Netflix, where we had built this application architecture that was built on HTTP, but we were running into some of the limitations that I just described. What we really wanted is a way to express so these bi-directional streams at the application layer and have an easy way for developers to send messages back and forth and define you know, APIs in either direction as easily as they could have done with HTTP. And some of those, so those reasons were sort of the genesis of the RSocket protocol, which is much as I just described, sort of this bi-directional protocol that was designed to solve the problems of sort of cloud-based microservice architectures. Right. So let's pause a little more on this question of request response versus streaming. So if I want to just request a web page from something, or I want to just hit a service and get a blob of JSON back, like give me you know, uh, like if I send a request to a service that gives me information about a movie and I just get a response that has the title of the movie and when the movie was created and the details of the movie, request response is great for that. But there are many other applications where you might make a request and expect a stream of messages to be streamed back over the connection. For example, maybe you make a request for movie recommendations and you're scrolling through the web page and you're getting this stream of recommendations that are rank ordered fed back to you and maybe there's interactions Correct. that are that are 
also getting passed back to the recommendation service. And as the interactions are taking place, maybe the stream of recommendations needs to be changed, needs to be updated over time. And so you have this bi-directionality as one side is interacting and the other side is updating its, its stream of responses to those interactions. So you don't necessarily have this just request response model. I might establish a channel and send a stream of requests and expect a stream of responses. So there's some obvious examples of this. Let's go through some of the interaction patterns, not just between services, because you could have, you know, these could be clients. You could have an iPhone client that's communicating with Netflix. You could have Netflix routing this client communication through several services. You could have many different things that are uh, between the quote-unquote client and the deepest service, and through all these different endpoints, you could have streaming taking place. Describe in more detail how networking works within Netflix from this streaming standpoint, and how this presents challenges for the infrastructure layers between the client and the backend. Yeah, as you described, sort of uh, Netflix is basically built on this requester response-style interaction. But as you pointed out, in many cases, what you really want is a, a stream and not just a stream, but this bi-directional stream, sort of this you know, bi-directional channel style interaction where I can sort of arbitrarily request more information if, if I'm ready to receive it and then the, the server will send it to me. So Netflix, I mean, architecturally tries to sort of hide this within the application layer. So internally, something like uh, reactive streams is a great way to build streaming application semantics without necessarily worrying about you know what happens across the network. So I could conceivably make a set of or a sequence of HTTP requests and get a response back, and then at the application layer represent that as a stream, and then sort of map over that and and modify that stream of information. So you can sort of fake it until you make it. And that's basically what Netflix had done until the attempt to create RSocket, which actually does uh, represent those streaming semantics over the network. So the way RSocket does it is it defines several different interaction models. It defines a request response interaction model. It It defines a fire and forget interaction model, which is like I send a request and I don't require any response back. So I might just be sending sort of a, a ping or some log information that doesn't, you know, critically have to reach the server if something goes wrong. But then it requires then it defines a request stream interaction model where I send a single message and I expect a stream of responses back. And finally the channel interaction model uh, where my request is not just a single item but a stream of items uh, and the response is also a stream of items. And then within our socket these sort of the message gets translated into a frame, a binary frame that flows over this persistent connection, and then gets routed to the, an appropriate receiver who decodes the the frame, and then you know looks at the message type and is able to delegate to the correct handler, which the, which can then sort of rest- return a stream back, which gets routed back to the sender. So as we're talking about the client and server both working over these streams of data, and we recognize that request response is not the same paradigm as streaming, we can get to talking about reactive streams. 
You talked about RxJava a little bit earlier. Explain what reactive streams are and what problem they solve for an infrastructure like Netflix. Yeah, so reactive streams is, is an attempt to define sort of a common standard for asynchronous you know, streaming information. Um, and what it sort of the major insight I think that it had and the major thing that it offers in terms of reliability is this concept of back pressure. So, you know, from a computer science standpoint, so a reactive stream is sort of the dual of a iterable. So an iterable is something where the receiver sort of is able to iterate at the pace that they're able to to handle over a stream of information. When you start inverting that and having somebody who pushes information out, you run into the problem that the sender might be sending information at a rate that's too great for the receiver to process it. And what that's going to result in eventually is a buffer filling up somewhere and then overflowing or those messages being dropped because I just don't have enough power to to process them at the rate that they're coming in. Um, So what Reactive Streams tries to do is kind of achieve the best of both worlds where it has a sort of an asynchronous request and message that where the sender, uh, where the receiver can tell the sender to uh, slow down if they're not able to process the messages as fast as they're being sent. So within Reactive Streams, it's a very simple interface and, and you can um, you know have a look on the Reactive Streams website or, or in GitHub. But basically you get a subscriber and then on that, uh, the subscriber makes a request and which gets sent to the, the sender and they're only allowed to send as many messages as has been requested. So that that's pretty simple insight sort of gets rid of all of these problems that have to do with senders sending information at a rate that's too fast to, to process. There's a term I want to explore here called back pressure. Can you explain what back pressure is and give an example of it? Yeah, that's pretty much what I just described. So, I mean, I think the term comes from sort of fluid dynamics engineering. So, if you're trying to push more fluid through a channel, so like a small pipe, then it's capable of handling, there's going to be a pressure back in the opposite direction that's, that slows down sort of the incoming stream of fluid. And that sort of by analogy is what back pressure is trying to achieve within in the reactive streams sense. It's that if I am trying to send too much information through, through sort of a narrow pipe, I need some concept of a message flowing in the other direction backwards to tell the sender to, hey, slow down. I can't process this as quickly as you're sending it to me. As we said before, if we're talking about reactive streams and different services communicating with one another, this could be a really long chain of services. So you could have a client that has a reactive stream interaction with the first edge layer of the server infrastructure, and then you can have several different layers of infrastructure beyond that edge backend, and then you've got this you know network of services. And so essentially, you just have this long distributed trace of different services that are interacting that uh, feedback into the client. So if we want reactive streams communicating across each of these different layers, does that mean that we need reactive stream interfaces at each of these different points, including the client interface? Well, reactive streams itself is doesn't concern itself with sort of inter-process communication. So reactive streams is only, is, as a specification level, is only an interface. So it's just attempting to provide a common you know, interface for this type of communication. What our socket does is try to take that concept and extend it over 
network boundaries. And so that allows you to define these reactive streams interfaces, and then you know you can implement them in various programming languages. I, we mentioned ArxJava. That's an implementation of the reactive streams interface in Java. There's also implementations that exist in JavaScript, you know, C Sharp, C++. Take your pick. There's implementations in almost every language. So having this sort of common specification or, or interface for reactive streams and then a way to take that and send it across network boundaries means that sort of most of the problem is already solved, as you were saying. So I can send a stream of messages to another machine. So I can be using Rx Java, say, in um, or Reactor Spring Spring's uh, implementation of the Reactive Stream specification on one machine, and then I could be using sort of JavaScript like RxJS on another machine, and I can connect those two with RSocket and start to send streams of information back and forth. What the implementation of Reactive Streams does is provide you with a very nice DSL to compose these streams together. So rather than having to deal with each of the individual events that happen on this stream, for example, on next when I receive a message or on complete when the stream is complete, I have a DSL to compose these streams together so I can map over the stream of information that is being sent back to me and make sort of modify each message as it comes through, or I can flat map to another asynchronous call so I can you know, take each message that comes in and then make a call to some other service downstream, then merge the response back into the stream. And so that's where the real power of, and beauty of reactive streams comes in, is that I can sort of take this very expressive set of DSLs and use it to solve problems that would have required me to write you know, sort of reams of boilerplate code and have to deal with con concurrency problems everywhere. I can just express those very simply as modifications of these streams that are coming through. So you've talked a little bit about RSocket at this point. You've talked about reactive streams. Help us make this more concrete to the listeners and provide some history on how RSocket got started. Maybe do you have some anecdotes or a particular service or a particular problem within the Netflix infrastructure that articulates what things looked like before and after RSocket made reactive streaming easier to work with? Yeah, so the Netflix platform was, you know, up until the point that RSocket was created, uh, was pretty much a Java-only sort of thing. So there was not a lot of support for applications written in, in other languages. In particular, Node was, and JavaScript is a language that many people at Netflix wanted to be able to use to write services that sat sort of at, at the edge and were able to modify re uh, requests from various, you know, clients and the responses that got sent to them. What existed at the time was called API.next, and it was sort of a serverless implementation where client teams could implement little, you know, scripts written in Groovy, and that was the only option they had. They had to write this little script in Groovy and use RxJava to sort of interact with this API layer that fronted all of the backend microservices, and then they could sort of make service calls and modify the responses or add and remove properties to the you know json that is being returned or aggregate many different calls and then re return that ultimately back to the client what those teams really wanted to do was to write that logic in a node application that they could sort of own and operate themselves but the problem with that is that it would have required re-implementation of this sort of entire complex platform with it for every language that it was desired to add support for. So, you know, Node, Python, C++, whatever people want to use would sort of require this 
complete rewrite of the Netflix platform. Uh, so the insight with RSocket was to sort of take that platform functionality and rather than have a, a sort of a fat client or a platform that implements it, to bake those things into the network protocol itself. So to have a protocol where rather than having to sort of rewrite you know, Hystrix, for example, that would just in JavaScript or whatever language, circuit breaking would be a problem that wouldn't would sort of go away because of by virtue of the back pressure that's built into reactive streams. I don't need to wonder if the server is able to handle the uh, stream of requests that I'm sending to it because I know upfront that they've requested demand and are able to process that information. And so what that did is allow UI developers to start building platforms in other languages and then the communication to the backend services took place over our socket rather than through this monolithic sort of API.next application, which then distributed the calls to the downstream services. How does RSocket compare to something like gRPC, where you have protobuf definitions and communication is mediated over messages that are encoded via this protobuf definition? How are messages defined in RSocket? Yeah, that's a good question. So... RSocket itself is more comparable to HTTP2 in sort of the gRPC paradigm. It's an application layer protocol that doesn't, it just sends sort of these binary frames back and forth and it doesn't make any presumption about what's in the frame, sort of whether it's a protobuf payload or JSON or thrift, you know, it only sends these binary frames back and forth. So HTTP2 is sort of an evolution of HTTP that went some of the way to solving some of the problems that we talked about to do with, you know, adding other interaction models beyond request response. And so gRPC is a an RPC protocol that uses HTTP2 to send these well-defined message types back and forth using the protobuf library. Now you could implement something like HTTP, like gRPC over RSocket as well. And then you'd additionally get all of the sort of the back pressure semantics of reactive streams. And, you know, HTTP2 is problematic in some senses in that it still keeps the sort of client server relationship and it's not truly bi-directional in that a server can't establish or you know make a request out of the blue to a client it has to be a request it has to send only information about a resource that the client subsequently requests and so that sort of problem makes it impossible for grpc say to work in a in a web browser and so we have there is a project called rsocket rpc that much like grpc takes pr the protobuf idl where you can define services that send messages back and forth it uses protobuf to decode and encode those messages but in instead of using http2 as a transport it uses rsocket to give the listeners another chance to catch up with what rsocket is can you describe some of the ways that other companies use it like i believe you and i talked about facebook using rsocket I think there are uses in the Spring framework for how people use RSocket. Can you give a few other examples for why this thing is useful, why people should care? Yeah, that's right. So the RSocket as a protocol originated at, at Netflix, but as you point out, its its adoption has to a number of different companies. So Facebook was one of the early ones who built the C++ implementation and use it sort of extensively within their architecture. Their use case hits on another sort of design feature of our socket that we haven't really talked about yet, which is the concept of resumability. So if you're sending these streams of information back and forth, and for whatever reason, 
that connection drops. In the case of Facebook, maybe you're on a mobile phone and you've you know gone into a dead zone or you know switched to a different application. It's very compelling to be able to resume the state of that stream exactly where you left off without having to go and make all these service calls to sort of rehydrate the state of your stream where the connection was broken. So Facebook uses RSocket at, at the edge, uh, especially for the mobile application, to be able to take advantage of this feature of stream resumption. So, and they use it in conjunction with uh, GraphQL, which is their sort of way. Netflix had a, had something called Falcor, which is very similar, but it's a way to uh, sort of make a fine-grained request that gets fanned out to a number of services and then returns only sort of the selected pieces of information that you're interested in. Within the So with architecture, I might make a GraphQL request for a number of resources, some of which might be granular, some of which might be streaming. So I might request a set of resources and then updates as those things change as friends come and go or post new information. I don't want to have to keep going back and requesting, you know, more and more information. I just want to sort of describe the set of events that I'm interested in, make a single request, and then have a stream redirected back to me that I can then, you know, render on the the mobile application. That's roughly how Facebook is using RSocket currently. And they're also in the process of revamping their Thrift client, which is how all of their internal services communicate with each other, much like gRPC, to run over our socket. So then internally, they can also take advantage of these streaming requests and stream resumption, back pressure, and all the stuff this you know our, that our socket offers you. I'm thinking of most applications as applications where request response is okay. It does the trick for them. If I'm even using something like Airbnb or my banking application. All I really need is request response. I just need to make a request and I get my banking application and and that's all I really need. Is this only for applications that are super data intensive, that are highly interactive, things like Netflix, things like Facebook, where you're navigating the Facebook page, the page is changing constantly, it's super dynamic, or things like games, where it's super dynamic, and you've got so much information uh, going across every network connection that you really can't afford to have bottlenecks, and you need to have well-defined semantics over how the data gets streamed. Is this only for specific types of applications? No, I mean, I would say, as you kind of alluded to before, there's all sorts of problems that people have that you can work around using request response, but it might be far more natural to express it as a a stream. Every application has like this set of a very similar set of concerns that often get, you know, represented as request response. But if you were able to do it as a stream might be far more natural. So I mean, every application, if you're building a distributed application, so observability is going to be key. So no matter what's happening, you're going to want a sort of a stream of, there's going to be a stream of events representing things that are happening within your system that you're going to need to tap into to have any clue about what's going on. And those events properly represented, I think, are, are a stream of information. So as things happen within my system, I just want to stream events out uh, and then process them elsewhere, right? Whether it goes into Kafka and I you know, process them there or some other data processing pipeline. I want to sort of redirect that stream somewhere. Like logging is another one that almost every application needs to handle in some way or another. So there's sort of use cases for streaming all over the place and not just for high performance applications. These sort of things are just, you know, 
par for the course in, in building a distributed application. In fact, what I would argue is even stronger in your direction that even Airbnb or my banking application could be made more interesting if it was more reactive and more dynamic. There would be more utility that the user could derive from it. Even a banking application, I mean, nobody wants to sit there and, you know, refresh the page while you wait for, you know, a transaction to post. Ideally, a web application should be more like, you know, an application that runs on your computer. You don't have to keep sitting there and pressing refresh. But these days, users expect information to be delivered to them sort of as it happens within the system. And, you know, bi-directional communication and streaming makes that just a natural part of building your application. You don't need to have these workarounds like long polling or, you know, other crazy things that people build just to try to work around the problem that their application protocol doesn't support, you know, bi-directional messaging or streams. And people might be wondering, wait, why can't I use a message queue for these, if I have a high volume of messages, can't I just use a message queue and then the requester and the responder can be loosely coupled? But I think probably the answer to that is, well, then you would have to introduce another component. And we're here we're trying to establish what is a connection, a high bandwidth connection pattern between different services that does not require an extra component. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And then as you pointed out, you might have all, like these layers of services that are, you know, making calls to one another and you don't necessarily want your message queue to like to be the bottleneck and you don't necessarily want what message queues usually give you are more like a, a pub sub style interaction where I'm posting like to a topic and I might have several listeners to that. What really what I'm on is this point to point streaming semantics where I can make a connection to an individual server and then stream information in two directions with that guy, not just whoever is subscribed to that topic. Mm-hmm. And just to, to really revisit this, because I found reactive streams to be super confusing in my own personal research. And I think talking to other people about what this actually means, what a reactive stream actually is, I want to make sure I've got it correctly. This is useful for point to point communication between two servers when there could be unbounded streams of data in either direction. And the way that you mediate those unbounded streams of data in either direction is via setting some number of messages that if I'm the requester, I am willing to accept back so that if there's a network partition or if there's some kind of other bandwidth issue, I have signaled in my initial message the rate limit of responses that I am going to get. And that rate limit of responses can propagate backwards all the way through uh, the other, the down or up, downstream or upstream services, depending on how you look at it, of the other service that I'm requesting from so that you have this limitation or the set of limitations that are propagated through the network and you don't have this problem of of too many requests getting buffered in either direction and and the network potentially crashing in some place because you've got problematic messages built up or dropped packets. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, reactive streams itself is is incredibly generic, right? It's just I don't remember who said this, I think, but it basically represents a set of events that could be from either like zero to infinite events from now until the end of time, and it doesn't make any it doesn't have any opinion about where those events take place or when. 
So reactive streams is just sort of the, the infrastructure for, for handling those events. And then you can imagine how complicated things get when you start to, to have these operators, they're called, which sort of merge these streams together, right? I might be dealing with, say, like 10 service requests that I made, each of which is returning a stream of information. And then I want to sort of merge those, all those streams together into a single stream, which is sort of the aggregate of all of them as those events happen. They emit onto this outgoing stream, but then the request end semantics has to propagate like across that that the merge operation, right? So, how does that work? Then the re- consumer of that stream makes you know request for ten items. So then I have to go out and sort of request new items from each of those streams that I'm merging together until I get the number of items that I ultimately needed that were ultimately requested of me, and then send it on to the receiver. So the reactive streams implementations are deal with an enormous amount of complexity that would be very, very hard for individual developers to, to write themselves. If you go look at the, the way that flat map is implemented, for example, in, in Reactor, it's not a trivial thing. But having that you know, generic implementation of like flat map, for example, which is you know, I'm taking events from this stream and then going off and doing something else asynchronous with them, which returns a stream itself and then merges it back together. If I have an implementation of that that I can rely on, it makes my life so much easier as a developer. I don't have to worry about, you know, I have 10 things I'm merging together, an event happened on one of them or an error happened on one. So what do I do? How do I propagate that error back? I don't have to worry about any of that. I just use the the DSL. All right. So whether we're talking about reactive streams in the context of the client libraries, the language libraries like RxJava or Rx. Uh, JS, or we're talking about reactive streams in the context of networking that is under the surface, which I guess is is our socket. Mm-hmm. You are building a company around this reactive streaming technology. The company is called Netify. What are your goals with Netify? Yeah, so we're building this next generation platform for reactive microservices and cloud native applications. So what we've built is sort of a broker that allows you to do all the, that solves these sort of common problems of building microservices, including service discovery, routing, resilience, security, but does it in, but does it using the RSocket protocol? So it really does give you this abstraction where I can go ahead and say, I want to talk to, you know, service A, and I don't have to know where in my network of services, service A exists, whether it's implemented in a data center, whether it's you know running on a Kubernetes cluster somewhere, or even if it's some in somebody's web browser, and I can make a you know request that gets directed all the way to somebody's browser and fulfilled there. So it's a platform that makes it sort of very easy to to build to take advantage of all the things that RSocket offers you and build very complex streaming applications as easily as you're as if you're using HTTP. So when you and I last spoke, we talked a little bit about the contrast between what you're thinking about in terms of products and offerings within Netify versus what some companies and cloud providers are offering with a service mesh. Can you describe what exactly your go-to-market strategy is and how that fits in to the ecosystem of what products people are looking for? So like, you know, I walk around in the expo hall at the Kubernetes conferences and people are 
enthused about service mesh, whether they're using it or not. They like the ideas around service mesh because it does this rate limiting and service discovery and policy management and all these different things that you want on top of your your Kubernetes network. And I think you're offering things that are similar to that, but implemented differently than the service mesh approach with sidecars. Give an overview of how your offerings are going to fit in against the backdrop of the Kubernetes service mesh world. Yeah. So, I mean, as I mentioned, so the Netify platform works on Kubernetes. It works you know, in AWS or Azure or whatever cloud provider you're using, but it also works in a data center or, or even a web browser because it doesn't use something like a sidecar. So I think, yeah, the core difference, I think people are looking for solutions to these problems that we mentioned, right? Service discovery, routing, resilience, security, telemetry. Service mesh has sort of come to mean one particular way of solving that problem, which relies on sidecars and is generally, you know, useful in something like environment like Kubernetes, but comes with sort of a, a set of restrictions that, you know, might not be appropriate for your application. What we're trying to do is, is solve these very similar set of problems, um, but we go a lot further than that. And that we use RSocket to offer new capabilities to the application developer that a service mesh is mainly considered concerned with connecting the pieces together within this distributed application. So hmm. if you want to connect the pieces together, our product, which is called Proteus, does that in a way that's vastly more performant than the current service mesh offerings. But then it goes further than that and that it allows you to sort of take advantage of these new application semantics like pushing and streams of push messages that go to, you know, your browser or mobile phone or, you know, dealing with streams of, of information. But yeah, I'm looking at uh, sort of IBM's performance test that they do with, with every build of Istio. They have this sort of dummy service set up, this uh, airline service, Acme Air. And there's a bunch of microservices that make that up. And so we sort of implemented the same thing using Proteus just to sort of like set some concrete idea of what we're talking about. The throughput they, that they get out of their Acme Air test is around, let's see, like 1,500 requests per second using Istio. I'm looking at sort of the ongoing test that we have running now, and it's it's averaging about 23,000 RPS. So it's about like 15 times more uh, throughput. But then, you know, maybe more importantly, their average response time as of the latest build looks like about 35 milliseconds. Our average response time is, is about five milliseconds and our like P90 response time is 15 milliseconds, sort of less than half of, of what theirs is. And if you've ever built a distributed application, it's the tail latency that you have to worry about, right? Because as you, it's never just, you're never just making one call. You're always fanning out and doing several different things. So the more you do, the, the higher the likelihood that you're going to hit one of those, you know, the tail latency part of your response histogram. Okay. You're talking about benchmarking Proteus and Netify versus the most popular service mesh, which is Istio. And by popular, I mean popular in terms of how it's marketed and how much it's talked about. Although Linkerd is, as far as I know, in the service mesh that's actually in production much more. So that's a separate issue, like why Linkerd is not receiving as much attention as Istio. But you know, that's a subject that we've we've covered a little bit before. 
it's kind of a separate weird conversation. I guess what we should talk about is what you are doing that contrasts with this sidecar model. Yeah. What is your alternative model to the sidecar model of service mesh? Yeah, right. So as you pointed out, the sidecar approach comes with a number of significant downsides that we should yeah go into a little bit more. And then I'll talk about how Netify does things a bit differently with Proteus and sort of what, what the difference is there. So yeah, one of the downsides, as we pointed out, is the, the performance issue. The sidecar approach tends to, you know, not perform as well because the sidecar has to do a whole lot. Like it's got to first of all go and enforce the well, first of all, it's got to go and do what I said. It's got to handle the service registry stuff. So you have to set up health checks. It's got to go, you know, talk to the control plane, register itself, you know, handle health checks, and then set up a load balancer that goes and load balances to all the addresses that it knows are associated with that service. And then it's also got to enforce, you know, access control policies. And the way that's done in the sidecar model is with certificates and mutual TLS. So it's got to deal with with all that stuff, getting the right certificate, setting up the mutual TLS connection, you know, validating it on the server and receiver, uh, the sender and receiving side. And then it's got to sort of understand your protocol enough to be able to load balance it, which is why sort of you can't just send arbitrary TCP usefully through a sidecar because it's got to understand enough of, say, gRPC to be able to understand what service is being offered and how to load balance that connection. But then it's also forcing you to install a bunch of infrastructure and then manage that infrastructure. So I think one of the reactions to this, the popularity or the, you know, emergence of this concept of a sidecar is that people have now started to realize that it's a huge upfront investment to uh, create the infrastructure and create a team that's able to manage all the infrastructure that's associated with the service mesh architecture uh, on an ongoing basis. So it's not just the sidecars, right? There's this whole control plane that you have to install and manage. So there's the stuff to serve the certificates. There's the stuff to manage all the configuration and circuit breaker settings. And all of these, that's your control plane architecture needs to be scaled up and down independently of your application. But how do you know, you know, what pieces of it to scale up and down? How do you know, you know, as a service operator, who do you talk to to say like, there's a problem with, you know, this piece within Istio and we should probably scale this up. It becomes the level of complexity of your application shoots up dramatically when, you know, this is ostensibly something that's trying to simplify your application. So there's that, there's that contrast there. And then with the sidecar approach, you're sort of tying all, all of the deployment topology of your sidecar to the deployment topology of your application, which is not necessarily something that you want to do. In many cases, it's not even possible. For example, you know, we talked about a web browser. You can't really deploy a sidecar along with your web browser that participates in this net- network in a, in a useful way. So then you have to start setting up all these you know, services to front your services within Kubernetes and do the load balancing some other way, right? Or if you want to run your pieces of your application in a data center and then other pieces in Kubernetes and other pieces, you know, maybe in a different cloud, not on Kubernetes, that becomes something that's also very difficult to manage because you have to deploy the sidecar along with every um, sort of component of your your application. Okay. Well, there's a whole lot of stuff we could potentially go into there. I know you had 
experience with the sidecar model at Netflix. I think it, that experience is some of what drives your your aversion to the sidecars. Is you you saw sidecar in practice at Netflix, and and you have some uh, some issues with it. But I think we should just close by by talking a little bit about your experience starting a company and how that compares to working at Netflix, because I am, like I said, when I walk around this expo hall at the Kubernetes conference, KubeCon, it is just a dogfight for enterprise dollars. And there is like so much redundancy between these different providers, like which platform provider are you going with and which Kubernetes storage provider are you going with? And it's a very good time to be in this infrastructure build out cloud native world but it can also be risky because it's you know if you if kind of the world passes you by or you make a bet on the wrong kind of technology or you know you're having trouble communicating what you're selling to customers or a cloud provider starts bundling the service mesh in for free, which they're doing, you know, there's all kinds of of competitive risks. So tell me what your experience has been starting a company and how that contrasts with your work at Netflix. Yeah. Before that, I think I wanted to get in briefly into the the way that Proteus works and then sort of the additional stuff that that we're able to do, uh, even against sort of a service mesh that's bundled in with your your cloud provider, which, you know, vendor lock-in stuff aside, you know, might be interesting to you, but it still comes with a bunch of the burden of sort of the configuration that, that goes along with uh, this idea of a sidecar or service mesh. So for every application, I need to write these YAML files or whatever to, to configure everything about that application because just, uh, you know, from principle, there's no way that they can know what your application, what level of traffic your application is capable of handling. That's something that has to be, has to come from configuration. So the difference between what we're doing at Netify and the sort of the service mesh architecture, I think, gets into this idea of services versus protocols. So you know, you might remember something like Napster, which is sort of a service-oriented approach to the idea of transferring files. Right within Napster, you have to run; they run this set of services which you interact with, versus something like BitTorrent, which is a protocol-based approach to that same problem. So Napster could be shut down because it was a centralized sort of service, whereas BitTorrent, anybody who's following the BitTorrent protocol can participate in that, you know, ecosystem. And you might, you know, there's similar analogies, for, for example, like transferring money, like PayPal is a service, right? But uh, Bitcoin and, you know, a bunch of these, you know, emergent technologies in the financial sector are protocols. So, Proteus, which is our broker, operates on the RSocket protocol, uh, much that you know a TCP router operates on the the TCP protocol. And what this allows you to do is take advantage of you know the strengths of RSocket. It provides all this functionality for you, like the back pressure stuff, so you don't need to configure circuit breakers all over your system. And it layers in all of the benefits of a, a service mesh, like service discovery and, and routing. And it offers you you know bi-directional streaming to boot. So much like, you know, you would install a TCP router and sort of set it up once and then forget about it, you can do this with Proteus. So it's it's a very simple 
broker that you can install and scale independently, but it's able to process a, a tremendous amount of uh, messages. So you don't really require the sort of wasteful amount of resources that you get if you distribute a sidecar with every uh, application. You can you know run a cluster, a small cluster of brokers, and have that distribute the traffic for your entire you know, Kubernetes cluster. But yeah, so you're asking about uh, starting a company versus, you know, working at a place like Netflix. It, yes. <laughs> In brief. It's an exciting time, as, as you're saying. And I think it's a time that, you know, a lot of things are up in the air and people are looking for solutions that, you know, really solve the problems they have versus make their lives more complicated. And so, you know, running a company to me is is exciting because there's so many directions that you can go in at the moment and so many big players who are, you know, looking to collaborate uh, on these kind of solutions. So, uh, you know, we mentioned that we work a lot with Pivotal and the Spring team. So the upcoming release of Spring is going to have uh, support for RSocket built into Spring, which will make this technology accessible to you know, whatever proportion of Java applications that are built using Spring right now, it's just like 80% or something crazy. So these, these things, you know, it, by, through these collaborations are becoming more and more accessible. We're also collaborating with uh, Alibaba, who's also very interested in the, the service mesh market. And so we've been working with them to build a service mesh for Alibaba Cloud built on, on top of Proteus and sort of working to open source a bunch of the technologies that we've built using Proteus um, through uh, in collaboration with, with Alibaba. But I think, you know, people look at applications like Netflix and, and Facebook. People look how the early adopters and the, the people operating at scale are solving these problems. And typically, they don't make that big of a deal out of it. A lot of the, you know, the most exciting pieces of Netflix, for example, are not open source right now and, you know, maybe never will be. Facebook, again, is a huge, you know, user of RSocket, but they haven't talked much about it in public uh, up until now, though they're, they're starting to do so more and more. But I think as the word gets out and as, you know, people become aware that there are real solutions to the problems that you're running into that that don't have to involve hiring an entire team and you know increasing the burden of operations and the complexity of your services that you know there are other approaches that you can use to to really simplify building cloud applications i think you know i expect a lot of interest in the in the coming months okay Ryland Degnan thank you for coming on software engineering daily it's been great talking to you thanks jeff it was great to be here wow 